need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am the editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, it's my number one boy. It's Andy Greenwald! I'm so happy you're still doing this. I've been doing it the whole time. You haven't been listening. Every time it's Allison Herman, it's Fantasy. I'm just like, it's Andy Greenwald! Let me tell them now publicly, mm-hmm. I'm so grateful <laughs> for their support, their appearances on this podcast. Yeah. It was friend of the pod and my executive producer, Sam Esmail, who mentioned to me in Albuquerque a week ago yeah. what a good job everyone was doing on the podcast, <laughs> don't you think? And I said, uh-huh, because I 100%. Because you only listen to Dual Threat with Ryan Russillo. That's kind of my vibe. <laughs> That's your only podcast. I didn't consume many, you want to be honest? I did not I consume, consume any podcasts. podcasts. That's not exactly true. Right. There was that one day where you were like driving to Santa Fe. <laughs> yeah. and you were like, podcasts. Podcasts are incredible. I only listen to the Dave Chang show. <laughs> That's really true. That is, there's. it's hard to imagine a podcast more suited to my interests, but the watch seems like a soft landing for me now that I'm back. Jesus Christ, it's good to see you. <laughs> What's up, man? You're back from New Mexico. Andy, if you've been living it's under a watch rock for the last couple of weeks, has been in New Mexico mm-hmm. shooting the pilot episode of his show Briar Patch mm-hmm. with Rosario Dawson. She was there. With uh, the great Dennis Hopper. <laughs> No. <laughs> the ghost of Dennis Hopper. No, no, no. Uh, no, you tell us a little bit about the experience. So I guess I have a ton of questions. I'd love to answer them. One thing I want to know is what are you going to miss about the ABQ? Um, you know, you're talking to a guy who just spent 45 nights in the same hotel room. <laughs> and when I say hotel room, I don't want people to think like... Sweet. This is not Doc Hollywood over here, okay? <laughs> yeah. Um, this was... <laughs> Doc Hollywood. I meant Mr. Hollywood, like I had a big hotel room. Yeah, because Doc Hollywood stayed in a pretty quaint, yeah, like you know, B&B. southern B&B, yeah. It wasn't like that either. <laughs> I was in a very small hotel room with a balcony that I would liken to a prison cell itself because it was like a balcony, but then there was like some extra Why do they stone. do that? Why do they make six-inch balconies? It was a six-inch balcony, balcony with like slatted stone yeah. windows so I could just maybe see the sun. Um, you know, I'm going to miss the experience. It was, it's really, it was an incredible experience. Yeah. It was a total dream. And what was incredible and also disarming was, you know, the people who do this regularly, the people who work in production, the people who, who are who are in the show, crew, it is a carny life, mm-hmm. you know, in a way that is very different right. from the life, the lives that we've lived up to this point. I mean, people, um, some production people were there for three or four months to work on the show. Some people are still there closing up the office. Um, you and know, then it's I, on to the next one. And then it's on to the next one um, in a different city or di- maybe even a different country. And the intensity of the work and the relationships and mixed with the the brevity of it was really something. Yeah. And so what I miss was the the excitement. I mean, it was really fun. My vision of this is really like um, <laughs> the scene in Annie Hall where they're like, we got Alvy Singer over here. Did you have any, any good Teamster interactions? First of all, one of my favorite scenes. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, first of this all. This guy's on the Johnny Carson show. Let me say right now, in a public forum, I love Teamsters. Mm-hmm. The Teamsters are amazing. Yeah, have you seen Ozark season two? I just want to reiterate how great the Teamsters are. No, I mean it. It is incredible. The I, I got no. I, first, I don't know if you're trying to bait me into saying something bad about the Teamsters. No, but, not at uh, all. I just was like, <laughs> I, I'm very interested in this Carney lifestyle. Yeah. 
One of the things that really blew my mind talking to you about all this was the sheer quantity of decisions you had to make on yeah. a daily basis and having those decisions be of consequence. I make decisions all the time. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares. You know <laughs> like, what I mean? I care. People care. I make decisions. Today but you they're decided not like, to wear this hey, heather, the heather blue shirt with this greenish color t-shirt. It's working for I you. I think I'm going to, I'm turning into Manzoukas. I'm just going to wear the same outfit every day. That's a great one. Yeah, I have multiple versions of this shirt, by really? the way, because I wore this Saturday night. I wasn't going to mention it. Were you? Did you actually notice that? I did. Yeah, but I, it's not the same shirt. Oh, wow. Yeah. You're Manzoukasing. Yeah. Okay, sorry, I interrupted you. That decision made. Yeah, so like, I make decisions all the day long. They are of varying levels of consequence. But one thing that I really got from our text message conversations, mm-hmm. and you'd be like, check this out, check this out, check this out, is like, holy shit, everything that he's deciding, everything mm-hmm. that he has to have input on, is going to eventually accumulate in this piece of, television, you know, and I'm really interested to see where the podcast goes from here because now I I would imagine you have almost a ton of sensitivity about, I know what that had to mean. Like, I know the decision that David Benioff had to decide about, like, what the the texture of the snow needs to be. Yes. You know what I mean? And maybe, like, a hundred other people also make that decision as well. But... Every single frame of of television that you see when you're watching a show, every single acting choice, every single piece of clothing somebody is wearing, every prop you see Mm -hmm. around the set, somebody decided that. And in some ways, that's why when we talk to some showrunners, they're so effusive in their praise of everybody that they've worked with to the point where almost like the interview kind of gets gummed up a little bit. That's how I feel. But that's how you feel. Yeah, I mean, I think that one carryover from life as a critic, and this is something that I think you believe as well strongly, is that all good art comes from making decisions and making choices, specific choices, right? There's nothing worse than something that's wishy-washy. So that comes out in terms of, you know, what is this character wearing? What is, you know, I'm, I was in the hair and makeup trailer talking about the great Jay Ferguson's beard length. Mm-hmm. Like, that was a conversation that I was a part of. Yeah. Um, and I hope people are very satisfied with the result because it's a terrific beard. Um, but what tattoos this character might have, what they look like, what they say. Um, I wrote the newspaper articles for the fake newspaper that is barely seen on screen because that stuff matters mm-hmm. to me. Um but yeah, there are incredible people working on every production who's in the various departments whose job it is, right before we roll, a minor character, someone runs up to me and says, sorry, is she married? What kind of wedding ring would she have? Mm-hmm. And then you have to have an answer and you have, to, you, have to, you have to decide that in that moment. People asking, what time is it in this scene? Because is the it, camera going to see the watch? Yeah, right. I, I, probably not, but it might. And then that informs the decision making. And so really, I mean... Look, the entire experience was a total dream, and I'm happy to talk about any aspect of it, but it was—people are like, oh, it must be so difficult or hard. It's not hard. It's just busy. You just have to be alert all the time. Sure. You know, and, and, and my—but my deepest appreciation from this experience, and this is going to derail the conversation, comes from learning in a real-time, personally—it's affecting me personally way what a director of photography really does all day. There what, you go a um, line producer does all day, what a, a UPM, you know, production manager does all day. And you cannot make something good without those people. Mm-hmm. And having, and I, I was lucky to have incredible people um, from the extended SML Corp universe work on the show. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny. I was talking with Miles Surrey a couple of days ago on the pod about Better Call Saul. Mm-hmm. And, I, and we were kind of trying to guess a little bit about how long we thought the show might run. And I was like, you know, I bet that they're going to do it as long as they want to do it. And they're not going to put some artificial, like, well, we have to end it at this point, either uh, 
in the real world or like in the be- in the mm-hmm. Better Call Saul, Breaking Bad, Albuquerque crime universe mm-hmm. timeline, because you can tell those people really like working together. And they've decided that that's what they want to do. You know, after Breaking Bad, they they could have done lots of different things. And clearly, a lot of those people decided what we really like doing is making this show and this place together. Yep. And that kind of sense of community, I think, is probably underrated by people who just judge the finished product. And, you know, it's not really that germane to whether or not you like a show, whether or not the people who, like, worked on Daredevil Season 3, you know, whether the line producer was good or not. But— I think it's important to understand the whole thing holistically. I really appreciate you saying that because I definitely, when you are in a, you know, walled off looking at the, looking at the finished product critical world, there have been times and there have been projects where I've said, it seems like they had a lot of fun making this in a negative way. Yeah. Things get sloppy or they're just palling around and you feel like you're intruding on someone else's fun, but you wish they had kind of gotten it together. Mm-hmm. I totally get that. But when you're trying to do this as part of your life and part of your work— the fact that we had on Briarpatch like a really positive atmosphere, everyone really seemed to enjoy each other and mm-hmm. get along, and that mattered a lot to me. It made my experience really good. But but yeah, I mean, this is going to be the next year of this if we're lucky enough to make the rest of, this, of the season and people get to see it. Was this experience that I had was amazing, mm-hmm. and what that translates into, we'll see. <laughs> but it was a really positive and collaborative thing, and 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 yeah, every detail. I know it's too early to ask this, and I know that you've probably been changing. It's been changing over the course of this last year or so. But was there anything where, you know, you were making this show, and then at night you would watch something, and you were noticing different things? Um, Did it change your eye at all, I guess? I definitely didn't have time to watch as many things as I as I thought, same old Andy. I would, <laughs> for sh- sure. I definitely went from being like, I'm just going to power through a couple seasons of stuff because you what else like, am I going to do? Here's the thing, man. I'm going to have so much free time. Yeah, you're going to be busting you, shows you, you down. Know, you know who heard that? People at the studio. <laughs> they had some interesting pushback to all my free time. Comment on the podcast. The Thanks for listening. It's like you know, get the pod rolling again. Yeah, this dude. He's trying. He's first of all. He's definitely listening, and it is incredible the way he's having this both ways in terms of wanting the pod to continue to his specifications because he had some notes about your recent opinions about things. Yeah, and yet he's he's pulling me away from it. Specifically, Better Call Saul was a lot of fun to watch because we had the same locations department, so I could talk to them about the locations they found. I could see things. Those guys are fucking good at their jobs. The locations we have on Briar Patch are amazing. Yeah. The locations on Better Call Saul are always immaculate. It was also fun to see that, like, the the place where the Germans are living, mm-hmm. that giant room is where we did our camera tests a couple weeks ago. No way, really? Yeah, it, and, that, and because that is a former solar factory that's located right next to the studios, Q Studios, where that show films. Yeah. And it's, that's the space. And you can build stuff in it. I think Sicario 2. Soldado. Soldado. Day of the Soldado. Yeah. Day, night. It was pretty <laughs> Soldado heavy. Uh, also did a lot of work there. Okay. So seeing things like that, like the hotel where I was for 45 days featured in episode two this season when uh, Mike entered it, the lobby and greeted the artwork there the way I often did. Mm-hmm. Um, or, so beginning around week two or three. I think I'd probably be able to answer that question better in terms of specific show or specific show. But I was definitely looking at things more. I was looking at the lighting now. Mm-hmm. I was looking at the performances, not in terms of 
how they flow together within the totality of this episode, but imagining the takes, mm-hmm. imagining the alts, imagining the other options they had to construct that performance. Yeah, and even you can probably see, I, I really want to talk to you about Maniac because mm-hmm. I think Maniac is emblematic of a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. And especially, you know, I think we were on a text thread with Sam and he was like, do you like it? And mm-hmm. and uh, Or you, he was asking you to ask me. And I, at first I was like, no way, like after the first this, episode. This is how he uses me, by and the way. And he was like, wow, I think it's you know amazing. Not to give anything away, Sam likes, him, so, likes Maniac a lot. And I got turned around on it. Mm-hmm. I have no idea why this happened, but I think that I was almost watching it the way I thought you guys would be watching it, which is that you can feel that world of Maniac leaping through your television screen mm-hmm. or computer screen or however you're watching it. And regardless of issues I may have with how they've chosen to construct it here and there, um, every single element of that show is bursting with creativity. Yes. And uh, the, actually the part that I am least enamored with is maybe the the narrative, you know, but everything else about it is absolutely intoxicating. This is a completely self-serving way to look at television shows, and I wonder if this is how I'm going to consider things going forward because I am a self-serving person. Mm -hmm. Um, You can think of things as an accumulation of their worst bits or of their worst and best bits or just as the sum total of all the parts. Or you can look at it from a perspective of there was an enormous flowing river of positivity and creativity, and here are the two or three things that sort of diverted the river, things that got in the way, that interrupted the flow. Can you still see the flow despite those things? Yeah, I mean— As hindrances. And immediately that happens. There's a lot of different choices being made by performers, by everybody, you know, like, and and sometimes I feel like there is a version of the show that I want, and then there's a couple of different uh, service roads going on outside of that that I kind of don't want to take. And and this is—and, you know, I'm—and we're going to talk about Maniac more in full, I think, in the weeks to come— the the writer and and creator of it is Patrick Somerville, who is a really good friend of mine. So I am completely in the tank for his work and for the show. He's going to come on the podcast hopefully soon to talk about it. But the most exciting thing for me over the last few weeks, well, there are many exciting moments, but you write a script and it does what it needs to do. Mm-hmm. You know, this script that I wrote was read and purchased and, uh, you know, then the the network came on and, and we got an amazing director and we got cast to sign on to do it. And we got all these, everyone from props to to Todd Campbell, our DP, agreed to do it off of the script. Then you get there to the place where you're shooting it and you have prep. And during that time, that's when you crack the hood and you open it up again. It is no longer a locked document. That script that I wrote is done. Mm-hmm. It served its purpose. It has to become something new. And everyone else has to buy in to their version of it and bring their enthusiasm and their talents to bear on it. And what comes out is hopefully the greatest hybrid version that is a reflection of everyone's intensity and enthusiasm. It's not just one person's thing anymore. Sure. Um, and, you know, in terms of Maniac, that's Patrick writing something with his talented room that he had. But he also had, like, like, like I was lucky to have an incredibly visionary director who had his version and what interested him in the story. And then he also had, he had Emma Stone, he had Jonah Hill, he had all these people bringing their pieces to it. So what is what you have at the end is something else that's alive and hybridized and hopefully greater than some of its parts. But seeing that process happen and also allowing it to happen because you have to let go. But that's also the lesson of whatever this job of showrunning or executive producing is, which is letting go at the same time paying complete attention to every <laughs> single thing and making decisions about the most minute details every minute of the day. Sure. 
I feel like there's some lessons in transcendental meditation here, which is why I'm very interested in doing it now. But, I, you know, in terms of letting go and also paying attention, I don't really know how that works. But that is the job in a way that I did not appreciate or or, or understand. Obviously, our our timeline has had some volatility recently, mm. uh, just the world in general. Um, how, what's it? What's been your relationship to sort of like the pop culture mill right recently did you see that guy who proposed at the emmys <laughs> what a moment that's right you missed the emmys he proposed yeah from the stage yeah. did you see did people talk about that <laughs> a little bit a little bit what a delightful I thing i was pro that oh super were but people pretty, anti that there was i don't think there was anybody who was anti uh i think i was pretty pro i'm pretty pro like kiss cam i'm pretty pro yeah. public PDAs. proposals like i don't mind yeah no look what what a gift <laughs> sure. that guy gave us <laughs> yeah I, I was, so we really can't be going in the Wayback Machine. I was perfectly happy with these Emmys. Maybe this is this is the this is the privilege of being on not currently podcasting island. Uh-huh. It was fine. What's everybody upset about? I wasn't mad at the Emmys. I'm just I'm I'm a little bit like distracted by the categorization methods that they have and or like the gamesmanship of things being Yeah, in. and also just like the calendar that they're on does not feel urgent. You know, it doesn't the way it's June to June doesn't make a ton of sense to me. I understand why they do it, but I, I just well, mean like— Well, increasingly it makes less sense. It, it is, that is definitely—that was the TV season, Sure, right? that's what and, I mean. I understand that no it's like a vestige anymore. of when it was like, right. you know, fall it, to May or whatever. But now it's like, eh, you know, like, are we really playing these games where these shows that were on, like, Ozark 1 gets nominated even though Ozark 2 is up, you know, and all this stuff. First of all, very pro-proposal. <laughs> very impressed that the director of the Oscars— yeah. Uh, was able to pull off the best moment at the Emmys. That was very impressive. I assume he's now halfway to his EGOT. The Game of Thrones thing, it's like, look, man, that's the most popular TV show in the world. You know, it's, this is a, this is another Sam Esmail point that he roasted us for last year in our Best of the Year podcast. Like, in the same way that that HBO and FX are, you know, they, they, there's gamesmanship as to what's an ongoing series and what's a limited series. Game of Thrones kind of should have its own category anyway. We're now at the what? end of the Lord of the Rings run, where right. it's like, ah, oh, just give these guys the Oscars. You're like, you nominated them a lot. Like, yeah, you know. and it, was that the best season? No, it was really super problematic season, sure. just in terms of storytelling, not in terms of the way we say that word now. But it was still accomplished on an epic scale that we have never seen on television, and more people watched it and loved it, and we're still talking about it. That so lady I had, wrote, wrote a dragon. Do you remember that? <laughs> well, she only got two now. Um, I have no problem with that. Mrs. Maisel is an incredible show that we have not given its due on this pod and hopefully we will when it comes back. Haven't we? Well, I, I, we... We never like went episode for episode. No, I mean, we it. talked about it from the pilot and then we talked about it and I had Rachel Brosnahan on to talk. Yeah, I'm but remembering all these things I meant to bring up to you. Like my, my, your bring boy, it to me. I mean, I just Luke love her. Kirby I love that doing show. double duty on Maisel and Deuce. I mean, <laughs> that guy, that guy really seems like he lives on the margins of New York. I believe he's Canadian. <laughs> Good work by him. He was really ice grilling the crowd too from... From behind, he looks like he's six four. Yeah, so I don't so know he's if he's like five, Luka seven. Doncic or something, but like <laughs> yeah. he was like towering over the cast of Maisel, which would not be shocked if the tech cast of Maisel was relatively short. Rachel Brosnan, tiny miniature person. So maybe he's like five eleven, but he was just like ice grilling the crowd. I was like, keep it real. That's I, right. I, I also think, like, look, don't ever let him see you smile. It's not this Instagram shit. You're you're, you're like Bruce. Is Atlanta the best show on television? Yes. Mm-hmm. Did every did all these geniuses get nominated? Yes. You can't control what's going to win or what people are actually going to watch. You know, for me, the the most shocking thing was that um, so FX didn't get Atlanta the trophies that it deserved. But the real winner from that night for me was the FX um, press and marketing shop because of Americans. 
because of the Americans getting the, again, like, sh- should Kerry Russell have won? Should the Americans have won? Probably. Mm-hmm. But they got that show, the valedictory awards that they had been campaigning for. It's, there's there's such a rush to it wasn't enough when the fact that it got any is amazing to me. That Joe and Joel rightfully got recognition for all the work they did on that show. That Matthew Reese, who's been brilliant on it, got the recognition. And that, by the way, did they ever get Versace over the finish line? Seriously. Again, this is the Sam Esmail pod, but like he loves that show yeah. and, and constantly is honest for not appreciating it enough. I didn't like it. I went back to it and tried again. And the fact that the narrative around that show was that this was yet another masterpiece from the FX Ryan Murphy factory, uh, and it deserved, you know, and it won award after award. That was really impressive to me, purely from a, like, I noticed a decided absence of taboo. Uh, yeah, what'd you, how'd you feel about that? I just mean, while we're throwing hosannas at the FX shop, I mean, yeah. maybe, maybe you check your blind spots there, guys. <laughs> maybe uh, reallocate the resources a little bit. Okay, so that happened. What I mean, look, man, I've not watched... Ozark season two. That's okay. How are you feeling about it? Uh, I, you know, I this was one of those effect. I, I'm done. I watched it in yeah. essentially a weekend. Uh, I think that the best of it is the best of it. Yeah. Like the best moments on the show are among the best moments on it. I was a little bit surprised. Do you care if I like give away like a little bit of bits about it? Uh, I'm not going to say I'll anybody. Watch it. I was surprised that they did not start with the riverboat is up and running. Okay, yeah. It's more of a Where they chose five re-inter- minutes later, the second season starts thing. Mm. And it almost feels like season 1A in terms of mm-hmm. uh, it's just an extension of the first season, although a lot of stuff happens and a lot That's of characters change. But I was kind of like, when, they, when the first season ends, and yeah. well, without giving away how they get there, this family is looking to get into business with the Dixie Mafia, essentially, mm-hmm. in an opening, not Dixie Mafia, but the Ozark Mafia. Mm-hmm opening a riverboat casino. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I cannot wait to be on this casino. Like, I cannot wait for this entire yeah. world to open up and who's going to come on. And it seems like such an incredible mechanism through which to transform people. Have we had a riverboat casino in the public sphere since Maverick, the film? No, I mean, David Milch had his riverboat casino show, but the riverboat sank, so they had to cancel the show. <laughs> <laughs> Where horses pulling the riverboat casino down the river, and they all got pulled in one by one. That's one for our luckheads. Yep. But yeah, it's good. It's just, it's just very much like y'all liked Ozark. Bang! Here's some more Ozark. That sounds Netflixy to me. That's interesting. You know, Ozark is often compared to Breaking Bad, and it's interesting to me that it, if that's the case, it may have taken the wrong lesson from Breaking Bad because what Ozark did so well was hit fast forward yeah. and wasn't as methodical about showing its work the way Breaking Bad did and really only Breaking Bad has ever done successfully. Right. I w- it would have been very Ozark to me if they had started in like year two of the casino, right? Like, let's just get to it. Yeah. Um, so two other shows that we should touch on. Yeah, I mean, you know, scramble. one of the things that I'd be curious to, once you get caught up with stuff, mm-hmm. and I know that really for the next few weeks— your sole focus is to just catch up on peak, post-peak TV. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Allison and I were talking, just as we're doing a little yeah. bit of a anthology of greatest hits from the last few podcasts, yeah. Allison and I were talking mm-hmm. a bit about how we are in a very, uh, I don't know, we can call it divisive, but you're getting a lot of divergent opinions about shows. There's not a ton of consensus about shows, right. but it's not like 
this like everybody is wrong and I'm right as much as it's like your mileage is really varying on Forever or Maniac. I think Saul, if anybody is, if you're watching Saul, you're like, mm-hmm. this show's really great. Although when you ask somebody what happens and it's like, well, they got some post-it notes <laughs> and they wrote on them for a while. And then these German guys. Well, let's talk about those. Um, Forever yes. is a show that when I was in Albuquerque for a long weekend after some night shoots, I had time to watch, yeah. and I watched all of it. Yes, I watched all of it as well. And I loved it. Yes, I did not love the ending. And I, But I know that this is, I, I, what you just said rings very true to me. Um, I loved it for a number of reasons. I, everyone here knows, this, if you're doing a drinking game, and I hope you're not doing it in, during your workday, yes, I like the runtime. Um, that was ve- <laughs> I was very amenable to the runtime of the show. Um, but I thought it was... Very thoughtful, very beautiful, very funny. Um, and it had the high aesthetics of Master of None, which Alan Yang mm-hmm. worked on, of course, and executive produced and directed a lot of the episodes of. But for me, this was a much more emotionally rich and interesting canvas. Mm-hmm. Could that be because I am no longer in my 30s with enormous discretionary income in New York City? And in fact, I have been married for quite some time. I'm going to leave that out there. That's very possibly true. Sure. But I just thought, and and you tell me if this sounds like I'm bringing this new perspective to bear on the show, but I just thought it used the talent and its opportunity so well. I think I've never been a card-carrying member of the church of Maya Rudolph. I think she's great because I'm an American who likes good things. But this was, to me— Very high approval rating. But this was, to me, her best performance by a million miles. Because it was so fully realized and lived in and allowed her to do a lot of things, mm-hmm. not just the highest of the highs that she's often called on to do in a sketch comedy. And the flip side of that was it used Fred Armisen very well, too, who I find very funny in limited doses. Sure. And this show understood that he was a supporting player on the show and played to everyone's strengths in a way that I just thought was smart. And so I realized I am talking like I'm telestrating the show now. I haven't even talked much about like why— passion why I liked it. It's really more being impressed by it. Maybe that's where I'm at right now. Yeah, I think that, uh, I, I just dislike the ending quite a bit, you know, and that's, uh, it's a, I, I, it's beyond sort of aesthetics and more about, I think, a failure of imagination and that something is so imaginative as mm-hmm. this show, which is imagining a drab suburban afterlife and find out that being with your life partner is actually a kind of death, you know, hell, mm-hmm. you know, not that it's hellish, but just that you wanted to imagine a different version of yourself mm-hmm. in the afterlife. I thought that the brevity with which they arrived at the idea that, uh, you know, after one sort of soulful conversation that they would be like, let's walk on an ocean floor together and be together forever was kind of, it, it just felt very like Apatowian, like the thing is, we all love each other. And no, I think and that family is what's important, you know? And it's like, no, man, like let her be Catherine Keener and go I, to Esalen. And I think that's a very good point. I think that there is a ease of use that is prevalent in a lot of comedies and on television. And, you know, Master of None is guilty of this too, where it uses very high production values, enormous talent, great wit and and humor to elucidate points that are maybe not that complicated. Mm -hmm. You know, like, there's an episode of Master of None that was very celebrated, and I watched it and I was like, so phones are bad? Right. Like, uh (laughs) uh-huh. That's pretty deep. But 
I thought that this show had a little more room and space around it to, to think about other things. There's the the standout episode is the sort of bottle episode. It's five or six, where it's Jason Mitchell and Hong Chow. Yep. And the leads aren't really in it at all. That also is very Master of None-like, and I, I love when they do that. I love that they find room within their relatively limited show to, to tell other stories. I thought both those people were great. You could tell that they both enjoyed an opportunity to do something that they haven't really done before on camera. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that that show, that episode, just by the the way the story was told, but also the depth of feeling in each scene conveyed a deeper I was just impressed by the the, sure. the depth of emotion in that. Yeah. I think that's a good point that it was these guys maybe are better short story writers than they are either novel or continuing series of novel writers, right? Because the the ending of Forever, while I agree was you know not fully satisfying, it definitely ends being like, well we could do this again, you know, Bezos? Yeah, right. You let us do it again? Well, this is <sighs> This is something I've been thinking about a lot because as you've gotten this sort of explosion of these 30-minute, they're basically like high-end, not sitcoms, but they're basically situation dramedies. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Allison wrote about about Forever very well in this regard in terms of its way it's in which it's kind of existing in between a drama and a comedy. And it has elements almost of science fiction when you're getting into like the, uh, the rules and regulations of the afterlife, which are pretty pliable, I bet. But, Mm -hmm. you know... Now that there's this volume of these shows, and now that you basically, you could, if you wanted to, to catch up, you would have six or seven weeks of shows Mm -hmm. to catch up on. There is almost like you, I have like a DNA thing where there's just going to be some TV that I'm like, that was pretty good. No matter how good it is, and no matter how creative it is, and how much they invest in it, both financially or creatively, it's almost like we're now creating a baseline of where network TV was of peak TV. Yeah, I think that's a smart observation. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, So it's like shows like Forever, which I think are fine, almost get the scrutiny of something like Lost or Mad Men, mm-hmm. but are in fact like a, a note to itself. You know what I mean? It's not It's not a novel. It is a short story. And yet, like, I think that when you get to the end of it and you consume it in the sort of voracious way that a lot of people did, I personally was just kind of like, oh, okay. I, I don't know if any show is going to take the mantle of being about everyone's experience or, you know, or everyone's cultural, uh, on everyone's cultural radar. Mm-hmm. I also think it would be really difficult if any of the shows assumed the mantle uh, they're just more shows, you know. Um, I don't know if you were thinking about this when you were saying what you what you just said, but you know, another show that's been on since I've been gone is The Deuce. I'm, I think I'm three or four episodes into the season. I'm that I am eager to catch up, and, mm-hmm. and we're going to talk about it. And I love it. And, and they announced and, that the next season will be the final season, which is what um, George Pelicanos more or less told us when right. he came on the podcast last year. This was designed to be a three season show, and you know, I, I think I'm just turned around now, where I'm just feeling like. We're lucky to have shows from the Pelicano-Simon universe. I love being in that universe, even when things get rough, as they do on those shows. What I've seen in The Deuce so far this year is exceptional. The performances are fantastic. The sense of, weirdly, old-fashioned TV aesthetics, right? That I'm just happy to be back with these people again and seeing these performances and living in the city and marveling over the production design, which is the thing I do now, I guess. Um, I don't know, and we'll, we'll find it when we find when we when we zero in on an episode to talk about, or maybe when we recap the whole season, what it meant or what it accomplished. But I just, I mean, 
I, I like what you were saying because I am loving watching that show the way I used to love to watch ER or NYPD Blue. Yeah. It's not those shows, and its goals aren't the same. And it's intellectually more demanding yes. a little bit than, than, say, watching ER where you can kind Absolutely. of like look up and then maybe, I guess back when ER was on, you would look at a, a box score in the sports section or something. <laughs> I had an old newspaper. I don't know what I was doing what, while ER was what on. I, I, had guess was, I, was, I had a microfiche machine <laughs> in my dorm room, and I would just be reviewing. You were so popular in college. I was really popular. <laughs> but, but yeah, like, I loved it. And the Better Call Saul thing, which has... I, I love that, you know, before I left, we were talking about it. I love that you continue the conversation about it. I am watching it in a way that I said didn't flatter the show. I am watching it week to week now. Mm-hmm. And half the time, I am just enchanted. And, okay, three quarters of the time I enchanted. There is still 25% of the time where I'm like, I can't believe they are connecting this fucking dot. Here's like, the problem. I can't believe it. Am I angry about it? Do I think that money should would be better used elsewhere in the world? Not really. Yeah. But I got to tell you, like I, I have never spent a moment in my life this last decade wondering how they built the super lab. I never really cared. Right. right. Um, have they done the best possible version of telling me that story? Yeah, they probably have. Yeah, starting no, with the dude, the, they the, did. Starting yeah. with the, the French guy with the hood yeah. over his head. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, terrific. But it does boggle the mind, and I do think, and we'll see it when we're done with the season, that the show has suffered slightly by its pivot to becoming the Breaking Bad prequel that we always thought it was. I was not super into Chuck. You've made that point explicitly. Yes, but that was a sort of— But that was, that was the show, mm-hmm. and now for me, the only thing that is compelling in and of itself is Kim. Okay, so I want to talk about Better Call Saul. Let's just take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Okay. Hey guys, it's Liz Kelly, here to tell you that we have a brand new podcast called Halloween Unmasked, premiering Monday, October 1st. Here's a sneak peek. There's trouble in the suburbs. A teenage girl named Lori Strode crosses a quiet street toward an ordinary house to find her friends. But Lori doesn't know that her friends are dead, and she doesn't know that she's walking right toward the masked killer, Michael Myers. The movie is Halloween. And Halloween just, it was like a, it was a breath of fresh, putrid air. He's a pure, unknowable evil. I'm film critic Amy Nicholson, and this is Halloween Unmasked, a podcast series from The Ringer celebrating the remarkable and terrifying rise of America's most revolutionary horror film. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to Halloween Unmasked and watch your back. I, I think the scariest part was that he doesn't die at the end. So when you're 10, it's like, that guy's still out there. <laughs> we, we gotta get him. All right, we're back. I wanted to get deeper into Saul with you. And yeah. I know that you're not entirely caught up, but... Almost there. That's You know, you were talking about the way in which you watch it, which yeah. I think we've brought up a few times in the past, and I kind of missed it when you were like, it's on Netflix, we really got to get back into this. I watched the whole season, it's amazing. And I was like, I'm, I'm behind, I'm behind, I'm behind. And then I caught up, and then this season, I've been basically, in a paranoid way, saving them three at a time. So I'll I'll save three okay. and then watch them in like a huge chunk. Yes. And I say paranoid because I'm constantly worried that I'm going to turn the internet on on Tuesday and it's like, hey, oh, Walter White just dunked on a dude. You yeah. know, like, and, and, I, and like, I'm just going to be like, ah, crap. Now, that may or may not be inevitable. Yes. But I do understand what you're saying, which is sort of like 
there's times in which you're watching this and it's like watching Michael Jordan play against like the Washington Generals, mm-hmm. like the 97 Bulls versus the Generals, where it's like, you've got all this acting talent, all this writing talent, and you're essentially telling a supplementary story. Yes. But Guillermo del Toro did this whole run recently on Twitter about why he thinks BCS is better than Breaking Bad. Okay. And he started getting into the distinction between plot and story. Mm-hmm. And he kind of went into it a little bit. He was talking a little bit about how like plot is rhythm and story is melody. But I've been kind of obsessed recently with just how detailed and boring most of the the story of what happens in every episode of Saul is. Right, if you were to just tell someone what happened that episode. if I was like, so Kim, uh, she's listening to music and she's highlighting. And then Jimmy is throwing a racquetball against a window and then he gets an idea. They brush their teeth sometimes. Yes, and then he does every single thing that would take to execute that. They Mm -hmm. skip no steps. And, you know, you're going through it, you're going through it. And yes, there is that dread. There is that, like, what's going to happen to Kim? Mm -hmm. And there's also the, how is this going to connect to the Breaking Bad world? But you just realize you're watching these people, basically their moral decay or their fall in real time, more Mm -hmm. or less. And when I say real time, every single little decision that gets made that leads to some future oblivion without knowing what happens to Kim and knowing that Jimmy becomes Saul, who becomes Gene, who is now a Cinnabon manager in Nebraska who's looking over his shoulder. I don't think I've ever seen anything like this before where they actually are using that height advantage that they have over all other television shows because they've got this mythology of the Albuquerque underworld and then they know sort of where they have to end up, but everything else is... Is they're making it up that it's it's they're 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 freestyling it basically. It feels like you're getting a, a depth of understanding of a giant story in a way that like you wouldn't get ordinarily. Yeah, I I think we've never seen anything like this. I, I, I and I admire it for that alone. Um, there are moments when I feel the constriction of the enterprise and. Mm-hmm. You know, the like Giancarlo Esposito coming back on the show, what a wonderful character, what a wonderful presence. Um, it's difficult often to feel that he's there for anything other than fan service and a well-deserved check, honestly, except then there are moments like the, the he delivers this long monologue at um, Hector Salamanca's bedside mm-hmm. a few episodes back. And it's an incredibly juicy monologue, and it's delivered brilliantly, and it adds texture and character and color to a story that, honestly, we we pretty much understood. Um, so I don't know, like, him nursing him back to a certain level of health <laughs> right. fills in, it, it, it's kind of like, it, it, it's, it's those moments on Wheel of Fortune when the puzzle is solved and then you spin the wheel one more time to get a little extra money out of it, sure. even though you know what it actually says. Um, and, and, I, and I get that, and it's, and, and it's fine. The larger thing that, that's that been impressing me is when, and I joked about the Super Lab a moment ago, but I'll, I'll revisit it in a positive way, which is, this is a show, of, I mean, Ozymandias, right, was the name of the, some people consider it, I think I consider it to be the best episode of the series, maybe one of the best episodes of television ever. Mm-hmm. Um, Ozymandias about all the things that a great king built reduced to sand. Mm-hmm. That's what the show is about. It's about the tragedy of obsession and work. Um in the early going of Better Call Saul, we joked about 
how Walter White cooking meth was more interesting fundamentally than Kim Wexler doing doc review. But all of these people are obsessed and consumed by the minutia of their work. That's where they choose to devote their energy and their time, and that's where they actually find solace when the rest of their lives are breaking down. And so to see every inch of effort put into these enterprises that are, like most professional enterprises, dust Mm -hmm. at the end. And what do they really get out of it? That we know Mike is spending all of his days and nights babysitting randy, miserable, claustrophobic Germans to build something that is going to be destroyed. All of this to make money that is going to be lost Mm -hmm. is incredibly human and tragic and intense. And when you think about it that way, I only wish that the show had the real estate or the interest in giving a character like Mike, for example, who is the co-lead of the show— those moments of those rungs on the ladder because Mike had that incredible episode early on that I broke my boy episode where we really understood who he was. But since then he's Mike and it's super fun to watch Mike just regulate and now speak German apparently and be able to literally accomplish anything in an impressive way without ever walking more than like without ever increasing his RPMs, you know, as he meanders around this world. But he's, it's not just that we know he's, he's going to survive Better Call Saul. It's that he's already who he is. And I kind of wish we could see him slipping down the rungs a little bit more as he becomes more and more embroiled in um, Gus Fring's empire and his devotion to these things. That, that makes sense. Does that, does that make sense? So, Because a lot, certainly all that attention is going to, to Jimmy. And, you know, I, maybe this is the way I'm watching the show, but it seems like that die has been cast now. Yeah, so the tension of the show obviously surrounds Kim. Mm-hmm. And luckily, they have, I think, someone giving the best performance on television in the role of Kim and Ray, Ray Seahorn. Where do I, we land on her name? Is it Ray or Ray? I think it's Ray okay. based on her responding to people on Twitter asking, how do you pronounce your name? Wow. So that's the source you're going with? Yes. That You don't think that's fake news? <laughs> Ale- Alexa Fogel, our pronunciation ombudsman, I believe says it's Ray as well. Yeah, I, I, I still don't know if I can quite articulate what's what's really amazing about this performance. Her and Michael Mando are the two people that mm-hmm. I think are really popping. And and not surprisingly, those are the two new people on the, the people show. people whose fates are unknown. And I think it's it's the amount of internalization that she has to do. Because she's not—with with the exception of that like explosion of against Howard earlier in the season, she's doing so much— basically silent face acting, you know, Mm -hmm. where she's in a meeting with Mesa Verde, but her mind is wandering towards setting up this elaborate con to get Huel off, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's something about how she is processing. Maybe it's because Jimmy was already a con man Mm -hmm. and knew that this is basically his baseline and personality, and it's really, when he's not being a con man, that's the con she is ultimately like a very good person and a very diligent worker and a good lawyer. And she is actually fighting away a demon. You know, she has actually got this thing that's like telling her like, you feel alive when you're out working without a, a safety net on a, on a wire. Yes, And that's watching someone process that, which is a very relatable human thing to be putting yourself basically in danger has been remarkable. She, I mean, she is the Walter White of this show more than, than Jimmy McGill that's is. a much more concise way of saying it. Yeah, but absolutely. in the sense that what she is on so far is kind of a elevator of morality as opposed to a down escalator. Mm-hmm. 
And that alone makes it more nuanced and makes it more interesting because in general, her decisions about her life and her professional career are sound. Mm -hmm. The Mesa Verde decision that she makes midway through the season and then about becoming a partner, I mean, yeah, that's a (laughs) much smarter way to live your life. What interests her about the law, that is a much smarter, more fulfilling way to live your life. But she is also a generous person and a kind person and a loyal person. And as you said, someone who doesn't mind a Moscow mule <laughs> or whatever that is. In, well, they in get the that expensive the tequila from the, the from the guy yeah, that, that blue, they that they blue bottle. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I'm going to catch up, and we're going to continue watching the show because it, it it's unique, but it also allows us to have it, it's a good test st- test case for this larger conversation we've been having so far in this podcast about the role TV shows play in our lives mm-hmm. and what what sets them apart. Um, I did realize before we end, I did want to go back to one thing because at the very beginning, it, maybe this is also a sign of me being a self-serving showrunner now, but at the very beginning you were asking about Briar Patch and I, and you said something about Rosario and I said she was there. I just want to take a moment to publicly say that she's fucking amazing. <laughs> she is an incredible person <laughs> and an incredible actor. Like negging Rosario Dawson. Dude, she is a hero. Big podcast listener? She definitely does not know about the podcast. Some <laughs> other members of the cast found out about the podcast and will no doubt be checking in. Um, she's so incredible as a person and as a top of the call sheet and made everyone so happy and delightful on set. And I think her performance is really special. But I have to say, for as much as I said earlier, and this is true, that I, I'm now totally in the tank for line producers or good line producers. And Todd Campbell, who does Mr. Robot and did Homecoming and shot our pilot, is just a genius. And, you know, I've I've talked before. I'll talk again about uh, Lily Amirpour, who directed the show. Dude, the first thing you do when when you're a critic for a TV show is you often are like, well, the star is really good. And then you get into it and you're like, I should pay more attention to the writing staff or the whatever. Actors are magic. That's my main takeaway. And I, I just want to piggyback on the way you were describing Ray Seahorn's performance. I do think actors are magic. I think that they somehow take, you know, words or the setting and all the details that we were talking about, and they're the ones who bring it to life. And yes, it's the oldest saw in the world to say that it's not coal mining, but it's pretty amazing to watch people work until five or six in the morning mm-hmm. with whatever's going on in their lives, however they're feeling that day, whatever else is in the air contextually, and bring it mm-hmm. and be on in a very difficult way and hold the camera, and hold the scene, and and elevate. That's the other thing that I was most impressed with. Honestly, like, they, to see acting not, and I said magic just now, so let me walk it back. To see it not as a magic trick, like maybe you see it when you're watching on the screen, or when you go to the theater, but to see it as an applied skill was pretty incredible. Um, And because I don't think I have any other outlet for this stuff, we should, and you mentioned ER a moment ago, I did occasionally want to drop a few of the other people who were in the cast of the show, or recurring guest stars. Did you know that we had Dr. Donald Anspaugh on Briarpatch? <laughs> Did he tell you any ER stories? John Aylward. Uh, that guy, Hall of Fame, I would say, right? You remember him as like he ran the hospital, right? He did a lot of scenes with, uh, what was Bill Macy's character's name? Morgan Stern, something? Dr. Morgan Stern. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. Anspaugh and Morgan Stern. Yeah, he told me a wild ER story. So here's the thing I didn't know about the great John Aylward, that he didn't do any screen acting until ER. He was just a theater guy and a very respected, uh, well-known theater guy. He lives in Seattle, regional theater, was in New York, and was in L.A. doing a play in the 90s um, that was being, you know, I think it was a John Patrick Shanley play, and it was at the 
the taper or whatever the main theater is here. And he got a call from his theater agent. And he was like, these people from a show want you to come down and audition for him. And he was like, okay. And they, they were like, just do the, do they want to see the monologue you're doing every night? And he said, well, that's easy. What's the show? And they said, it's called ER. And he said, never heard of it. <laughs> and he went in front of like 30 producers yeah. from Amblin and whatever, did this monologue, went back to his hotel where he was staying with a blinking message light. And they're like, you got the gig. He's like, okay. <laughs> and then launched his second career by being on ER. Mm-hmm. And I was really, I got to say, I was really hoping for some like deep Sherry Stringfield cuts. Where's some Stringfield, like, man? Some like Ben Ruby gossip, <laughs> Deezer D. LOLs. Yeah. And he didn't really, uh, this is the most boring story of all, so maybe he'll have to call in, but he did say that it was the most magical and greatest set, and it was, he just talked about how much fun it was. And that's a dude, you see actors not just who are great in, for, you know, certain parts of their career, but this guy, he's in his 70s, flew to Albuquerque, (laughs) just showed up, and just brought it. Yeah. It was pretty exciting. That's awesome. It's pretty exciting to watch people be able to do this up close, and I I'm going to bore everyone for the next year with stories about something that they can't see yet. Well, we'll keep talking about it, obviously. And I think it's going to inform a lot of our conversations as it did today. Thursday, maybe we'll talk a little bit about this most recent episode of Saul when it comes out on Monday. We probably, maybe we can catch up on the deuce on Thursday. Are we going to do this again? I thought this was just like the (laughs) welcome home show. Well, Manzoukas wants to come on soon to talk about Yellowstone and Magnum P.I., that's his wheelhouse Those right his now? Requests. I was like hitting him with all these. I was like, Maniac is good. This is good. This is good. He's like, let's okay. talk about Yellowstone and Magnum PI. Okay, I like that. So we have a lot of stuff to talk about. I will I will be back on Thursday. Okay. I'm not I'm not leaving you again. You held it down. Thanks, Thank, man. Thank you to you, Allison, Sean, Miles. Who else who else pinch hit? Greta Daro, Zach Barron, Sean yeah. Fennessy. Yeah. How was it for you though, really? It was good. I miss you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. thanks, buddy. This is very too. easy to talk to you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. <laughs> Should we do it with the uh, the mics turned on? <laughs> Shout out to Kaya. We're back. Uh, see you Thursday. Great job, Baranskis. <laughs> <laughs>